0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 18th of May for the listening week that begins the 20th. And your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First up, we have current events and news. This comes from the Daily Camera in Boulder. It was posted the 18th. Written by Bruce Finley Colorado Springs residents for first time elect black mayor. Yemi Mobilade Colorado Springs voters have elected Yemi Mobilade, a 44-year-old Nigerian immigrant who moved to the city in 2010 and emerged as a business and church leader to serve as the city's forty-second mayor in a runoff election by a double-digit margin. Movalade will be the city's first elected black mayor and the first non-republican in that office in four decades. He will bring a former outsider, immigrant's hard work, hustle, and seeing nothing but opportunities to the job, he said in an interview Wednesday morning. His Republican opponent, political veteran Wayne Williams, has conceded. City clerk officials wrapping up vote counting Wednesday said the margin was about 57.5% to 42.5%. Colorado Governor Jared Polis congratulated Mobilade, who is registered as an unaffiliated. And has cast himself as an entrepreneurial bridge building, pardon me, that's bridge builder, committed to prioritizing quality of life and, quote, loving your neighbor over political party interests. About 37% of the city's registered voters cast ballots in the runoff. Colorado Springs is poised to become a world class American city. We have the natural assets the beauty of our landscape, and we are doing the work of making sure our urban scenery matches that of our landscape, and that our quality of life matches our landscape," said Mobilade. He went on. Today is a new day in Colorado Springs. My vision for our city is to be an inclusive, culturally rich, economically prosperous, safe, and vibrant city on the hill that shines brightly. Colorado Springs position at the base of Pikes Peak and relatively big space at 195 square miles compared with Denver's 153 square miles has made it a leader among U.S. cities deemed most livable in recent years and the population has grown to more than 483,000. Traditionally conservative as a hub for the U.S. military and the U.S. Olympic Committee, the city over 152 years has relied on trans-mountain diversions of water to sustain development on semi-arid high plains. City leaders this year approved a controversial ordinance requiring guaranteed water supplies at 128 percent of demand before allowing any annexation of new land for development. This was a looming factor in the mayoral election. Mobilati won with a message prioritizing public safety, infrastructure improvement, and overall economic vitality. He supported a Trails and Open Space initiative that 80% of voters in April approved, extending a tax that raises funds for ensuring green space, consistent with General William Palmer and other city founders' emphasis on natural beauty. On Wednesday morning, Mobilade pledged to restore parks and recreation funding that was cut by predecessors following the 2008 economic recession. I think about General Palmer and his vision for this city. What he saw is what we all saw when we came to Colorado Springs, the beauty of the landscape, the mountain. That's what brought most of us to the city, and that is what kept us here, he said. We must continue to invest in it. Mobolade never has held elected office before. He came to the United States in 1996 seeking educational opportunities as an immigrant born in the West African nation of Nigeria where his mother was a teacher and his father an employee of the global oil giant ExxonMobil. He attended Bethel University in Indiana graduating with degrees in business administration and computer systems before earning a master's degree in management and leadership at Indiana Wesleyan University and a seminary degree at the A.W. Tozer Theological Seminary in California. A married father of three He helped establish and co-owns two cafe-style restaurants in Colorado Springs, the Good Neighbors Meeting House and the Wild Goose Meeting House. He founded a Christian and Missionary Alliance church and ran a ministry for the First Presbyterian Church of Colorado Springs. He became a U.S. citizen in 2017. He served as a small business development administrator for the city and as vice president of the Colorado Springs Chamber of Economic Development Corporation for Business Retention and Expansion. Next, turning to theroot.com, first article is uh, Their Take on This Election, written by Angela Johnson, published on the 18th. Here's the first black mayor of Colorado Springs. Independent Yemi Mobolade defeated his Republican challenger in a May 16th runoff election. If the current state of politics in this country has you looking to relocate, here's some news that might keep you here a little while longer. The city of Colorado Springs just made history by electing a black mayor for the very first time. Nigerian-born Yemi Mobolade defeated his Republican challenger, Wayne Williams, in a May 16th runoff election. Mobilade, an independent, is also the first non-Republican mayor in the city's history. His predecessor, Mayor John Southers, publicly endorsed Williams during the campaign. How's that for progress? Before getting into politics, Mobilade co-founded restaurants Good Neighbors Meeting House and the Wild Goose Meeting House, The mayor-elect ran on a platform of crime and safety, improving the city's infrastructure and bringing more businesses to Colorado Springs. And his victory speech was a hopeful message to the city's residents that positive change is on the horizon. And unlike the Republican twice impeached ex-president, who shall remain nameless, Mobilade's opponent was not a sore loser. In fact, he accepted the election results and congratulated the mayor-elect on his campaign. Williams said, "It's clear Colorado Springs is less conservative than it used to be. When I was chairman here of the El Paso County Republican Party, we had no Democrat—pardon me—we had no Democratic state reps. Now we have three. So there are significant changes that have taken place." and I congratulate Yimmy on an excellent campaign. Next, written by Candace McDuffie, published on the 18th. What? Marjorie Taylor Greene compares being called a white supremacist to the n-word? Greene's latest remarks reiterate just how racist and hateful she truly is. And I may slightly edit this for Language, we'll see. Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to prove that she's not just incredibly hateful, but also an extremely proud moron. When she's not mimicking Mexican accents or calling Democrats pedophiles, Greene, in classic Karen fashion, perpetually victimizes herself. Sadly, her latest comments are no different. After an exchange with Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman that happened in front of the Capitol Wednesday, May 17th, Green got on her far-right high horse during a press conference and thought it was okay to say that being called a white supremacist is equivalent to being called the N-word, a page taken from the white supremacy playbook itself. Jamal Bowman was shouting at the top of his lungs, cursing, calling me a horrible, calling me a white supremacist, which I take great offense to. That is like calling a person of color the n-word, which should never happen. Calling me a white supremacist is equal to that, and that is wrong, stated Green. She continued to prove how much of a bigot she is by stating that Bowman was, quote, yelling, shouting, raising his voice, and that he has aggressive. His physical mannerisms are aggressive, Green continued. I think there's a lot of concern about Jamal Bowman, and I'm concerned about it. I feel threatened by him. Of course, painting black people as violent, dangerous, and aggressive is what white people have done for centuries in order to capitalize off of our existence. Bowman said as much when he addressed Green's speech. Bowman said, Throughout history, black men have continually been characterized as aggressive because one, of our skin color, but two, because we happen to be outspoken and passionate about certain issues. He also said that he never invaded Green's personal space, which she also claimed. He said, anyone who has interacted with me, anyone who knows me, any reporters here know I'm middle school principal energy. I'm teacher energy. I'm always loving and engaging and friendly, except when kids are being killed in our streets. Everyone should be outraged by that. Green will continue to cry white woman tears in an effort to distract from how dangerous the GOP is. Their party is about oppressing and terrorizing people of color. This is just the latest example of how ruthlessly they function. Next, still political news. This one by Candace McDuffie, again from The Root. And it was published on the 15th. Here's why Biden calling white supremacy America's most dangerous terrorist threat is important. Dr. Walter Greeson explains to the root why Biden's honesty is a pivotal moment for Americans. During his address at Howard University's commencement on Saturday, May 13th, President Biden used the podium to, ad- pardon me, to assert that white supremacy is the most dangerous terrorist threat in America, or that is, to America. Biden also recalled the story of how he decided to run for president in 2017 after seeing white supremacists march in Charlottesville. Biden stated, I don't have to tell you that progress towards justice often meets ferocious pushback from the oldest and most sinister of forces. That's because hate never goes away. The President also acknowledged the disturbing nature of American history and how even though the right is working hard to erase it, its consequences are indelible. Conservatives have accused Biden of using this moment at the HBCU to pander to black folks and divide Americans, but historian and educator Dr. Walter Griesen tells The Root that the President's commentary about racism is both vital and substantial in a broader historical context, especially considering the alarming number of hate crimes that happen in this country annually. For more than a decade, the federal government has tracked the threat of racial terrorists, people who seek out to attack Jewish, African American, Asian American communities, because they perceive that white nationalism is the only legitimate culture in the United States, explains Greason, He goes on. That belief predates the founding of the United States and holds the assumption that if you're not white and Christian, you cannot be a citizen. Though white supremacy is deeply embedded in the idea of American society and state and federal policy. This is really new ground for a president to be vocal in condemning it and saying, that is not the path we're on. It reflects a commitment that stretches back to the civil rights movement. Biden isn't simply reiterating a biased reality black people are painfully familiar with. He is addressing racial injustice on a national stage. Greeson doubles down on its significance and said, this speech at Howard University puts a spotlight on the way African Americans have understood the contradictions of freedom in the United States from the very beginning. We need this to be highlighted because people don't often think very much about this pardon me the sacrifices and the struggles to make freedom for all people possible. That lesson isn't taught very clearly and emphatically, despite almost 40 years of historians increasingly writing and publishing the research. He also tells The Root how history has become largely distorted, making Biden's remarks more important and timely than ever. He said, the public as a whole remains in a very romantic view of the American past, this is the time when the president is really leading the country to open their minds to learn things that they haven't ever seen or heard as they grew up, particularly folks who are over the age of fifty. Although the GOP has distorted Biden's words and intentions to fit their own nefarious agenda, doctor Greason insists that the President's truthfulness is downright honorable. He said There's a sense that if you criticize the United States or discuss painful moments in history, somehow this is unpatriotic. But in fact, the highest form of patriotism is to recognize the cost and the pain of achieving our highest ideals. Biden has been criticized for things he hasn't achieved during his presidency in terms of his plans for racial justice, including voting rights and police reform. However, Griesen says the president has still achieved positive change. The hardest thing, he said, for any president is to move quickly with the Congress when they have the opportunity. So in those first two years where I felt Biden had the greatest chance to make an impact, he did extraordinary work to make the country stronger, both in terms of our economy and in terms of our defense. Biden's stint has succeeded Trump's tumultuous presidency, which hasn't been an easy feat. Biden did work to bring people to the table after four years of very divisive language and policy under the Trump administration, said Greesen. The calm that the country has enjoyed for the last two, two and a half years is Biden's greatest accomplishment. No. Do we want more in terms of policy? Yes, but we need a Congress that actually will work with the President in order to have that. Next, written by Candace McDuffie, posted on the 18th, Law Enforcement. Shocking reason why a witness in George Floyd murder trial says he's suing Minneapolis police. Donald Williams filed the lawsuit in Hennepin County District Court on Tuesday. Donald Williams, who was a vital witness in the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer three years ago, is suing the city. Williams says he suffered emotional distress and was assaulted as he watched Floyd's killing. The lawsuit was filed Tuesday in Hennepin County District Court. According to the lawsuit, former officer Derek Chauvin threatened onlookers with a can of mace as he kneeled on Floyd's neck on May 25, 2020. The lawsuit also states that Chauvin and another ex-officer, Tao Tao, goaded Floyd, Williams, and other witnesses who voiced worry and that Tao put his hand on Williams' chest. Williams believes this was a threat and was scared for his well-being as well as the well-being of others, explains the lawsuit. Williams is seeking more than fifty thousand dollars for each count He is alleging one count of intentional infliction of emotional distress, one count of assault, and one count of negligent infliction of emotional distress. The lawsuit lays out how, because of the officer's behavior, Williams has suffered pain, emotional distress, humiliation, embarrassment, and medical expenses. Chauvin was convicted of state murder and manslaughter charges in Floyd's killing and received 22 and a half years in prison. He also pleaded guilty to a different federal charge of violating Floyd's civil rights and received 21 years for that. Currently, Chauvin is serving both sentences concurrently at a federal prison located in Arizona. Thau was convicted of aiding and abetting manslaughter and is still waiting to be sentenced. thou was convicted of violating Floyd's civil rights and received three and a half years in federal prison. Williams testified at Chauvin's trial. He stated that the former officer seemi- seemingly increased the pressure on Floyd's neck, in which Williams screamed at Chauvin that he was cutting off Floyd's blood supply. Next article also by Candace McDuffie. It was published on the fourteenth. Yale study reveals terrifying excess deaths for African Americans. The study tracked deaths among black Americans for more than twenty years. On Tuesday, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, published a shocking new nail pardon, me, that's Yale study that sheds a light on racial disparities in the U.S. regarding life expectancy for black folks. Studies have shown for years that black people suffer from illnesses at higher rates and die younger than white people. However, the study JAMA shared revealed that the higher mortality rate for black Americans translates to 1.63 million excess deaths compared to white people, this is over the course of more than 20 years. The higher mortality rate for black folks between 1999 to, 19, two, pardon me, 1999 to 2020 led to the loss of more than 80 million years of life in comparison to white folks. America managed to make progress in attempting to close the gap between black and white mortality rates from 1999 to 2011. According to the document, heart disease was the number one contributor toward age-adjusted excess mortality for men and women, followed by cancer for men. Between 2011 and 2019, however, that progress was hindered. In 2020, COVID-19 expunged two decades of advancement as the disease hit black Americans the hardest. According to Clyde Yancey, who is one of the authors of the study and chief of cardiology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, this discrepancy has less to do with genetics and more with America's history of racism and discrimination, which has resulted in black folks being adversely affected when it comes to housing, education, and jobs. It is important to remember that this is not an abstract concept. There is a real human toll to these entrenched inequities," said Marcella Nunez-Smith, Associate Dean for Health Equity Research at Yale and one of the study's authors. She went on, "...the impact on families and communities should be unacceptable to all of us." In a statement, the lead author of the study, Cesar Caraballo, explained its significance and starkness, and said, The abrupt worsening of these disparities in the first year of the pandemic indicates that current efforts to eliminate mortality disparities have been minimally effective and that progress has been fragile. We need targeted strategies aimed at early childhood health and preventing heart disease and cancer, some of the main drivers of these disparities, to build a more equitable future. Next article comes from the New York Times was published originally May 9th, written by Sarah Mervosh and Dana Goldstein. Florida rejects dozens of social studies textbooks and forces changes in others. The state objected to content on topics like the Black Lives Matter movement, socialism, and why some citizens take a knee during the national anthem. Florida has rejected dozens of social studies textbooks and worked with publishers to edit dozens more. The state's Education Department announced on Tuesday, in the latest effort under Governor Ron DeSantis, to scrub textbooks of contested topics, especially surrounding contemporary issues of race and social justice. State officials originally rejected 82 out of the 101 submitted textbooks because of what they considered quote, inaccurate material, errors, or other information that was not aligned with Florida law. But as part of an extensive effort to revise the materials, Florida worked with publishers to make changes, ultimately approving 66 of those 101 textbooks. Still, 35 were rejected even after that process. Mr. DeSantis, a Republican, has campaigned against what he has described as woke indoctrination and a leftist agenda in the classroom. Last year the state rejected dozens of math textbooks, saying that the books touched on prohibited to- topics pardon me, that's prohibited topics, including critical race theory and social emotional learning, which have become targets of the right. The state's review on social studies textbooks, which is conducted every few years, was widely expected to raise similar objections. The State Education Department released a document outlining several revisions that it said publishers had made at its request, but the document did not list the titles or publishers of the revised books, making the claims difficult to independently verify. The revisions outlined by the state include An elementary school textbook no longer includes Home Support Guidance on How to Talk About the National Anthem which had included advice that parents could quote use this as an opportunity to talk about why some citizens are choosing to take a knee to protest police brutality and racism. Florida officials said that content was not age appropriate. Next a text on different types of economies was edited to take out a description of socialism as keeping things quote nice and even and potentially promoting greater equality, the description was flagged as inaccurate and mention of the term socialism was removed entirely. A middle school textbook no longer includes a passage on the Black Lives Matter movement, the murder of George Floyd and its impact on society. The removed passage described protests, noting that, quote, many Americans sympathized with the Black Lives Matter movement while other people were critical of looting and violence and viewed the movement as anti-police. The state said the passage contained, quote, unsolicited topics. Manny Diaz Jr., the Florida Education Commissioner, said in a statement that textbooks should focus on historical facts and be free from inaccuracies or ideological rhetoric. Teaching about race has become a lightning rod nationally, but especially in Florida, where Mr. DeSantis, who is widely expected to announce a 2024 presidential bid, has made it a signature political issue. Yet the tone of this year's announcement by the state was softened compared with last year when the state rejected the math textbooks. In 2022, the announcement was made in a splashy news release emphasizing the rejections, quoting, Florida rejects publishers' attempts to indoctrinate students. This year, by contrast, state officials emphasized the percentage of textbooks that had been approved and how the state had worked with publishers to increase the number of approvals. At a news conference at a classical charter school on Tuesday morning, Mr. DeSantis signed a package of education legislation and emphasized other topics including $1 billion in funding to increase teachers' pay. The governor put little focus on the social studies textbooks, though at one point he appeared to allude to reporting by the New York Times, which found that a publisher, Studies Weekly, had rolled back discussions of race in its submissions in Florida, including in the story of Rosa Parks. Mr. DeSantis said on Tuesday, if you are trying to create narratives that something like a Rosa Parks book is not allowed, that is a lie. Studies Weekly has said that it had been trying to decipher how to comply with the New Florida law, known as the Stop Woke Act. Signed by Mr. DeSantis last year, that law prohibits instruction that would compel students to feel responsibility, guilt, or anguish, for what other members of their race did in the past. The law has at times created confusion and Studies Weekly later apologized for what it described as an overreaction by its curriculum team. Studies Weekly's social studies submissions were not approved for use in Florida. The state's approved list of social studies textbooks will have a significant impact on how history is taught to nearly three million Florida public school students on topics ranging from slavery and Jim Crow to the Holocaust. Florida's textbook approvals can also influence what students learn in other states. Fewer than half of the states approve textbooks at a statewide level, but those that do include Florida, Texas, and California, the three biggest markets. Publishers often cater to these states using them as a template for the materials they offer in smaller markets. Florida rejected some textbooks for large national, pardon me, that's from large national publishers like McGraw-Hill and Savas Learning. McGraw-Hill said in a statement, We are reviewing the situation. At this point, we do not know why these titles were not recommended. Savas did not respond to interview requests by Tuesday. Another large publisher, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, did not even bid in Florida's social studies market this year. Adam Lotz, an historian of education at Bingham, pardon me, Binghamton, Bingham, forgive me, Binghamton University, said that for more than a century, American publishers have revised textbooks to appease political concerns sometimes using razor blades to remove material on topics like evolution or reconstruction. The push to censor school materials has often come from conservatives, said Professor Lotz, and in Florida's announcement he heard echoes of old battles. He noted that state policymakers cited age appropriateness in asking one publisher to remove the discussion of athletes taking a knee during the national anthem. While the subject of police violence may indeed be disturbing to children," said Professor Latz, the State made no objection to another reference to violence and death on the very same page of the lesson. Quote, "...talk to your child about our military and how they sacrifice their lives for us," the text states. Using age appropriateness is a strategic or a tactical move, He said, adding parents and other stakeholders tend not to like the idea of textbooks having important information cut out, but parents are friendly to the idea of age appropriateness. Next also from the New York Times, published on May 10th, written by Ellie Dolgen. Scientists unveil a more diverse human genome. The Pangenome which collated genetic sequences from 47 people of diverse ethnic backgrounds, could greatly expand the reach of personalized medicine. More than 20 years after scientists first released a draft sequence of the human genome, the Book of Life has been given a long-overdue rewrite. A more accurate and inclusive edition of our genetic code was published on Wednesday, marking a major step toward a deeper understanding of human biology and personalized medicine for people from a range, pardon me, that's for people from a wide range of racial and ethnic backgrounds. Unlike the previous reference, which was largely based on the DNA of one mixed-race man from Buffalo, with inputs from a few dozen other individuals, mostly of European descent, the new pangenome incorporates near-complete genetic sequences from 47 men and women of diverse origins, including African Americans, Caribbean Islanders, East Asians, West Africans, and South Americans. The revamped genome map represents a crucial tool for scientists and clinicians hoping to identify genetic variations associated with disease. It also promises to deliver treatments that can benefit all people, regardless of their race, ethnicity, or ancestry," said researchers. It's been long needed, and they've done a very good job, said Ewan Birney, a geneticist and deputy directors general of the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, who was not involved in the effort. He went on. This will improve our fine-grained understanding of variation, and then that research will open new opportunities toward clinical applications. Powered by the latest in DNA sequencing technology, the pangenome collates all 47 unique genomes into a single resource, providing the most detailed picture yet of the code that powers our cells. Gaps in the earlier reference are now filled, with nearly 120 million previously missing DNA letters added to the three billion letter-long code. Gone is the idea of a totemic strand of DNA that extends six feet when uncoiled and stretched out in a straight line. Now the rebooted reference resembles a corn maze with alternative paths and side trails that allow scientists to explore a broader range of the genetic diversity found in people the world over. Dr. Eric Green, director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, the government agency that funded the work, likens the pangenome to a new kind of bodywork manual for automotive repair shops. Whereas before every mechanic only had the design specs for one kind of car, Now there is a master plan that covers different makes and models. We've gone from having one really nice blueprint of the Chevy to having blueprints of 47 representative cars from each of 47 different manufacturers, he said. Knowing what to do with this Kelly Blue Book of Genomics will involve a steep learning curve. New analytical tools are needed. Coordinate systems must be redefined. Widespread adoption will take time. Making this easy to be used by the community is work to be done, said Heidi Rim, chief genomics officer at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and she was not involved in the project. But in due course, experts said, the pangenome will revolutionize the field of genomic medicine. We're going to have the benefit of actually understanding ourselves as a species much, much better, said Evan Eichler, a genome scientist at the University of Washington. Dr. Eichler was among more than 100 scientists and bioethicists who described the new pan-genome reference in the journal Nature. The architects of the project are continuing to add more population groups with the goal of including at least 350 high-quality genomes that encompass the bulk of global human diversity. We want to represent all the branches of the human tree, said Ira Hall, a geneticist who leads the Yale Center for Genomic Health. Some of the new genomes will come, pardon me, will come from New Yorkers who previously participated in a research program at the Mount Sinai Health System. If their preliminary DNA data seems to reflect certain underrepresented genetic backgrounds, those individuals will be invited to participate in the Pangenome Project. Some gaps might never get plugged in the publicly available reference, though, by design. Previous attempts to capture human genetic diversity often extracted sequence data from marginalized populations without regard for their needs and preferences. Informed by those ethical missteps, pangenome coordinators are now collaborating with indigenous groups to develop formal policies around data ownership. We are still grappling with the issue of native and tribal sovereignty," said Barbara Koenig, a bioethicist at the University of California, San Francisco, who was involved in the project. In Australia, researchers are incorporating DNA sequences from various aboriginal peoples into a similar depository that will be combined with the open source pangenome, but then kept behind a firewall. According to Hardip Patel of Australia's National Center for Indigenous Genomics in Canberra, the scientists next plan to consult with community leaders about if and how to make the data accessible through request. Some indigenous advocates want to see the Pangenome Project go further. Keolu Fox, a genomic scientist at the University of California, San Diego, who is Native Hawaiian, has suggested training the next generation of indigenous scientists to have greater agency over the genomic data. It's finally time that we decentralize power and control and redistribute that among the communities themselves," said Dr. Fox. Next I move to some articles I have archived. First, an article about Bill Spiller. This caught my eye as an article that ran in San Francisco. Newspaper, but I was unable to access that fully, and so have moved to this one from May 2022, coming from the Fire Pit Collective. Bill Spiller, the man who broke golf's color barrier. Tulsa's Bill Spiller was the force to end segregation on the PGA Tour, and this is written by Lass Versailles. Versailles. Pardon me. There wasn't much opportunity for a young black man in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the early 20th century, and there wasn't much peace either. Tulsa site of this week's, this was in May of 2022, PGA championship being played at Southern Hills Country Club also happens to be the site of one of the more violent attacks on African-Americans the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, and it is where Bill Spiller came of age. Unsurprisingly, he didn't stay in Tulsa too long. These acts of violence and the South's lack of opportunity drove millions of African Americans to leave the agricultural economy of the South for better opportunities in America's more industrial cities, and that's what a young Bill Spiller did. He left for Los Angeles, with the hope of finding work in the defense industry. Instead, he ended up working as a porter at Union Station. Young Bill Spiller was a decorated athlete at Tulsa's Booker T. Washington High School. He was a graduate of Wiley College, an HBCU just outside of Shreveport, Louisiana, where he also excelled in sports like basketball. By age 29, Spiller was already in Los Angeles when a fellow porter at Union Station encouraged him to give golf a shot. Within a few years he was breaking par with regularity and turned professional. He grew addicted to the game and the rest, as they say, is history. Professional golf in the 1940s was a segregated sport. African-American players found a place to play with the United Golfers Association, a tour where players competed for meager purses. Spiller dominated the UGA winning over 100 events. Spiller's barnstorming life was funded by friend and boxing legend Joe Lewis, who sponsored Spiller and a handful of other black players, including Ted Rhodes. Pardon me, that's including Ted Rhodes. Ever the competitor, Spiller dreamed of bigger stages than the United Golfers Association could provide. He wanted to play with the best, and the best played on the PGA of America's Tour. In 1948, the Los Angeles Open was played at Riviera Country Club. It's important to note that the LA Open was not technically a PGA Tour event, just like the United States Golf Association's US Open is not technically a PGA Tour event. All of the best professionals showed up for the 48 LA Open, which was run by a progressive tournament committee that ignored the PGA Tour's Caucasians only clause. Spiller played well enough in the LA Open to earn a spot in the following week's tour stop at Richmond Open near Oakland, California. It was in Richmond that the walls started to crumble around the PGA of America's Caucasians-only clause. But the PGA wasn't about to go down without putting up a long and dirty fight. Spiller arrived at the Richmond Open only to be told that he would not be able to play due to the Caucasians only clause. Spiller alongside fellow African-American golfer Ted Rhodes fought back filing a lawsuit against the PGA of America citing that the PGA was abusing its power. The PGA knew it was in trouble and promised Spiller they would end the discriminatory practices if he would drop the lawsuit. Spiller dropped the lawsuit against the PGA, but the PGA didn't uphold their promise. Instead of desegregating their, quote, open tournaments, they started to use the word invitationals. And you can guess who wasn't invited. Fast forward to 1952, a new tournament, the San Diego Open, invited Spiller to participate. Horton Smith, a well-known racist who won the Masters a few times, was the newly appointed president of the PGA of America. Smith told the tournament committee that blacks would not be allowed to play, including Spiller. Once again, Spiller would look to the courts for his justice, and again he dropped the suit before it got to court. The PGA of America agreed to let black players who were invited by tournament committees to compete, and again the PGA of America wiggled around the issue and kept black player, me, black players out of their events. Nothing had really changed. Bill Spiller's prime had passed by 1960, but his willingness to fight had not. His best playing days behind him, he was caddying at Hillcrest Country Club in Los Angeles, where he would loop for California Attorney General Stanley Mosk. Suddenly, Spiller had an advocate in Mosque who told the PGA of America they would not be allowed to use public courses if they maintained discriminatory practices. In 1961, the PGA of America finally dropped the Caucasians-only clause, and Charlie Sifford became the first African-American member of the PGA Tour. It would be Sifford, not Spiller, who was credited with being the Jackie Robinson of golf. Tiger Woods once said, if it wasn't for Charlie, I probably wouldn't be here. For his timing and talents, Sifford would be inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2004 and be granted the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama in 2014. Spiller passed away in 1988, still bitter that he was denied the chance to compete at golf's highest level just because he was black. He was posthumously granted PGA of America membership in 2009 and inducted into the Oklahoma Golf Hall of Fame in 2015. When I asked his son Bill Spiller Jr. how his father might have felt about these honors, he wasted no time in answering. My father probably would have said, it's about time. Today it is the right time for us to honor and recognize Bill Spiller as the man from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who fought the fight so that Pete Brown, Lee Elder, Charles Owens, Charlie Sifford, Jim Dent, Lee Elder, Jim Thorpe, Calvin Pete, and Tiger Woods could play. Still the subject of sports. This one comes from CNN and it was posted April 5th. Written by Jack Bantock For nearly fifty years, only black men caddied the Masters. One day they all but vanished. History never forgets a champion. When you win one of sports' biggest titles, you become immortal. Win multiple times and your legacy is even greater. To think of the Masters is to think of Jack Nicholas the most successful champion in the major's history with six wins, and Arnold Palmer, who donned the winner's green jacket four times in just six years at Augusta, Nat- me, Augusta National. And yet, for decades, two former champions with a combined nine wins lay buried in unmarked graves. Willie Peterson caddied Nicholas's first five victories, while Nathaniel Ironman Avery, was on the bag for all four of Palmer's triumphs. Avery's headstone was only installed at Augusta's Southview Cemetery in Georgia in 2017, 32 years after his death. Three years later, a 10-minute drive away at Cedar Grove Cemetery, Peterson, who died in 1999, received his. They were just two of Augusta National's original caddy corps, all of them black men, who, from the inaugural edition of the tournament in 1934, guided golfers around the fabled course. Every subsequent year for almost half a century they would play substantial, sometimes pivotal, roles in the destination of the green jacket. Kings of the Hills The stories of the original group of Augusta Caddies almost always began in the same place, Sand Hills. Located just three miles from the Masters venue, the historically Black district, pardon me, district lay adjacent to Augusta County Club. There, local kids between 12 and, pardon me again, between 10 and 12 years old, could earn a wage carrying the bag for members. Around 90 percent of Augusta National's original caddy corps grew up in the Sand Hill neighborhood, according to Leon Maben vice president of the board of directors at Augusta's Lucy Craft Laney Museum of Black History. Eventually many would hop across Ray's Creek to begin work at Augusta National. Or, as Ward Clayton, author of Men on the Bag, The Caddies of Augusta National, terms it, they graduated. They were just looking for a buck, Clayton told CNN. They weren't aiming at the outset to become the greatest caddies in the world but they did. That's what they became. It wasn't as much of an age thing as it was just your ability. You had to learn to how... Pardon me, that's a typo there, I guess. You had to learn how to act around adults, how to read greens, how to tell guys what clubs to hit, what their yardage was, and how to read people. You had to become a little bit of an amateur psychologist. You had to read them right away from the first hole. There was a strong incentive for graduating. A good bag at Augusta National would pay up to $5, Mabin said, offering $20 for a particularly lucrative day's labor. For Jiria, Jerry Beard Caddy for the 1970s, uh, pardon me, 1979 Masters Champion Fuzzy Zoller, it meant he could earn as much in a day as his parents could in a week working at the city's John P. King mm-hmm. Mill the Godfather. If caddying was an education, then Willie Pappy Stokes was its headmaster. Having grown up on the very grounds Augusta National was built on, a 12-year-old Stokes was hired to provide water to workers constructing the club. During bad weather, the youngster closely studied how rain streamed across the terrain, always trickling towards the course's lowest point, Ray's Creek. That realization formed the basis of Stokes' ability to read greens with near-perfect accuracy, a knowledge he imparted to budding students at Saturday morning Caddy School. And that's in parentheses. At just 17 years old Stokes helped Henry Picard to the 1938 Masters title. He would retire after helping four different players to win at Augusta and having sealed his status as the godfather of caddies. Stokes's knowledge trickled down to those that followed, epitomized by Beard in 1979. To this day, Zoller remains as the only golfer to win the Masters on his first attempt, as Beard steered the debutante around Augusta, quote, like a blind man with a seeing-eye dog. And they were Zoller's words, not Beard's. Relayed by the American in Loopers, the Caddy's Long Walk, a 2019 film co-produced by Clayton. Mabin often joked with Beard, who died in March, age 20, pardon me, that's age 82, that Zoller ought to give him his green jacket. These guys were ahead of their time, said Maben. They knew Augusta National like the back of their hand and were able to direct a golfer without any type of instrument, like today's caddies use. They didn't have no book to go by or no instrument to say how the wind was blowing that day, anything like that. They were the best at what they did. Dead Man Walking And as with the Godfather, caddy nicknames were par for the course. Tommy Burnt Biscuits Bennett. On the bag for Tiger Woods' first Master in 1995—that's first Masters—in 1995, got his moniker after an attempt as a child to steal biscuits being baked on his grandpa's, pardon me again, his grandma's wooden stove, ended with him badly scalding himself. Then there was John H. Stovepipe Gordon, Frank Marbleye Stokes, and Matthew Shorty Mac Palmer. Avery's Iron Man title had multiple stories as to its origin, according to Clayton, one being that he inadvertently cut off a finger while playing golf with a hatchet, and another that he injured a hand playing around with powerful firecrackers. But Clayton has a clear favorite in his nickname department, Willie Cemetery Petite former caddy for President Dwight D. Eisenhower. The story, as recounted by Clayton, goes as follows. Caddy by day, jazz band drummer in downtown Augusta by night, Pertit was leaving a gig one evening when he was jumped by a gang brandishing knives. The group had been gathered by the caddy's ex-girlfriend who was, quote, terrifically hurt after he had ended the relationship. Hospitalized by his injuries, Pertit later returned to consciousness But not in a hospital bed, instead he woke in a refrigerated bay, staring into the horrified eyes of a mortician. The doctor eventually gave him too much medication and they thought he was dead, explained Clayton. So all the caddies give him the nickname, Dead Man. President Eisenhower, right at the outset, said, I don't really like that title, we're just going to call you Cemetery, washed away. Those who worked the bag were often closed with the golfers they paired with. There was an enduring divide, social as caddies and racial as black men in America. Only allowed to play the course on the days Augusta National was closed to members, caddies were quote, considered a lower class. Despite the respect for their craft, said Clayton, Maben, having spoken to many of the original caddies, agreed. That's during segregation, Jim Crow period, and black men were downgraded in society. Called boy, inward, and all that, said Mabin. The way I analyze it from a lot of conversations I had, they knew their place at that time in society. In 1990, TV executive Round Townsend became the first black member admitted to Augusta National. Fifteen years later, Lee Elder had become the first black golfer to compete at the Masters. By the time Townsend arrived, most of Augusta's original caddy corps had disappeared. For the first 48 years at the Masters, golfers had to employ the services of the club's caddies, but from 1983 onwards, they could bring their own. This year, the Lucy Craft Laney Museum will put on the legacy of Augusta's Black Caddies center stage. Twice a month, the museum, supplementing its regular tours, The men on the bag experience will be seen, the stories of three original Augusta caddies, Stokes, Pertit, and Peterson, as they are acted out in a play. And at the end of each performance, at least two original caddies, or living legends, as Mabin refers to them, will emerge from the audience to host an on-stage Q&A. Each will be immortalized in a sports trading card, stylized with their picture, story, and stats, to be signed and distributed to patrons as they leave the show. Mabin rarely calls them caddies. It's almost always living legends, superstars, or most commonly of all, champions. And history never forgets a champion. That brings me to the end of our time. I had to skip over several paragraphs, unfortunately. I may return to this article in the future to finish it out. Nevertheless, that was great. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC Programming is brought to you in part by Wana Brands, enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.